Amen. Amen. Take out your Bible, if you would, and open it to Jonah chapter 1, or take out your Jonah booklet and open it to page 10. We are continuing in our series on the book of Jonah. Michael kicked it off last week and set the context. It's such an amazing job setting the context. There's so much history that we have today about this time period in which Jonah lived, in which the Assyrians in Nineveh lived. If you didn't have a chance to hear Michael's message last week, I would encourage you to go get it. It really frames up the book for us. So he set the context and then And then we look to the first three verses, God's commission of Jonah to go to Nineveh and Jonah's disobedience. Jonah is on the run to a city called Tarshish, Tarshish, and Jonah's on the run to Tarshish. And I want you to know this about Tarshish, as best we can tell, Tarshish is as far west in the ancient world as you could possibly go. It's on the southwest coast of Spain, all the way across the Mediterranean Sea from Israel, some 2,000 miles. So Jonah gets this commission from God in Israel. He's supposed to go to Nineveh, which is about 500 miles to the northeast. Instead, he turns and he goes to Joppa, which is on the coast in Israel. He gets on a ship, he pays his fare, and he's headed as far west as he can possibly go. Literally, the end of the earth as they knew it. Now, Something that might be helpful for us as we study this book of Jonah is to think about Jonah like a four-act play, four chapters, four distinct acts. And each week, we're going to look at a scene within one of the acts and talk about how it fits into the broader story. This scene in Act 1 is on a ship headed across the Mediterranean Sea. And before we're thrust into the scene, I want to make one comment that I think may help us to understand it. Don't be surprised if you find yourself cheering for the bad guys, okay? Don't be surprised if you find yourself cheering for the bad guys. The guys on this ship, the men on this ship are crusty, old, heathen, pagan, idol-worshipping seafarers. They all have a different God. Jonah is a prophet of the one true God. I've been cheering for the bad guys all week. Got so bad for me one time this week. At one point, I was just like, Lord, just get Jonah off the dead gum boat. Just get him off. Tie an anchor to his ankle and throw him off. Whatever it takes, get him off the boat. I I want these crusty old seafarers to be saved. Now, it might say something about me. I love movies where the bad guys win. Maybe some of you do too. Uh, Oceans 11, 12, 13, who do we cheer for? The thieves. We want them to get away with it, right? Italian job. Don't know how how many of you have seen that great movie, same kind of thing. Entrapment. Anybody seen Sean Connery, Catherine Zeta-Jones? I've never wanted a piece of art to be pulled out of a museum so bad in my life. Like, get it out of there. Robin Hood, my my favorite Robin Hood is actually the cartoon version. Anybody seen the cartoon, the old cartoon version? Theme music's like this. You know this? I hear that theme music and I'm like, let's go Robin Hood. Get it done. Steal from the rich. Give it to the poor. Let's get on with it. I love that bad guy. That's just the reality. 
I read an article this week and, and uh, it was entitled this, uh, Six Tricks That Movie Producers Use to Make You Root for the Right Guy. And one of the tricks was this, if he's a villain, give him a classy hobby. Stealing from the rich, giving to the poor, that's classy. We're all cheering for Robin Hood, right? Maybe it's just me, but I think as you enter this scene, you'll find yourself rooting for them too. Okay, let's get on to the ship. Our section is in verses uh, four through nine. I'm actually going to pick it up back in verse one so that we have a little bit of the context for what God does here. Chapter one, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord, verse 4, hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea, such that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. There is all kinds of tension in the text. You can sense the strength of the storm. This boat is about to capsize. The sailors are afraid. Jonah is down in the basement taking a nap. There's tension between Jonah and the men on the ship, the sailors. There's tension between Jonah and the captain of the ship. There is tension between Jonah and God. This is a great scene. The author helps to create the tension through two literary devices. Repetition, he repeats key words, and contrast. These intriguing contrasts between the actions of Jonah and the actions of the others on the boat. Now remember this, when we study the Bible, we start with observation. What do we see? So whether we come to the book of Jonah altogether like we are this morning, or whether you're sitting down in your own personal Bible study, that's where you start. You start with observation. What do you see in the text? And two things that may help you, they help me this week as I sit down with this text, are to look for repetition, if it's repeated, it's important, and comparison or contrast. And I'll show you what I found here. First, by way of repetition, look at verse four. The Lord hurled a great wind and there was a great storm such that it was about to break up this ship. Now, we don't know this for sure, but this was likely a merchant ship 
running a common route from Joppa to Tarshish across the Mediterranean Sea, likely a freighter carrying some form of cargo. What we do know for sure is that this was a substantial ship in that it could make that journey. Whatever the weather conditions, whatever the sea conditions, it could make that 2,000-mile trek. So what does this repetition here show us? Well, it shows us this. This ship, however great it may have been, was no match for the great storm that was sent by the great God. In other words, God has power and authority over the wind, over the storm, over the sea, and over the ships that sail on it. This kind of repetition is throughout. Look look again at verse 4. Also here we find that the Lord hurled a great storm. That's important in the sense that this storm was clearly sent by God for a purpose. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. But it's also important in in that that same imperative verb, hurled, is used again in verse 5. It's repeated where it says the sailors threw, same Hebrew word, or hurled their cargo into the sea. And we, and we see here that there's nothing that they can do, nothing that they can hurl off the boat that can stop what God has sent or hurled their way. Look at the end of verse 5. Jonah has gone down into the hold of the ship and laid down to sleep. That word down is the same word used in verse 2 where Jonah goes down to Joppa. It reflects a very important distinction in the Old Testament between the faithful or the obedient to God who go up, who look up to worship, who go up to Jerusalem to worship, who make sacrifices on an altar where the burnt offering rises up in worship to God. A contrast between those who are faithful and obedient who go up and those who are disobedient, Jonah in this case, who go down. They turn from God. They run from God. They want separation from God. They go down. Verse 7 and 8, we see another repetition. That word for calamity there. Same word used in verse 2 where God talks about the wickedness of Nineveh. The sailors in verse 7 and 8, they they say, on whose calamity has this storm struck us? Who is responsible for this? Of course, that question is answered. It's Jonah's responsibility. So here's what we see in the repetition. What we know to be true about the Ninevites, that they were evil and disobedient in their relationship to God, is now true about Jonah on the boat. Same word. All kinds of repetition, lots and lots of it in this text, more than I have time to mention. But repetition that frames the tension and highlights some of the contrast. Let me show you two of those. First, the contrast between Jonah and God. Look look at verse 3. God has just told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Then verse 3, first two words say, But, very important prepositional phrase, but Jonah, but Jonah doesn't go, but Jonah runs the other way, but Jonah disobeys. Now look at the very first two words in verse four. It says in this translation, the Lord. 
The ESV actually renders it, but the Lord, which I think is better here, but the Lord sends a great storm, but the Lord sends a great wind, but the Lord stops Jonah in his tracks. Here's the contrast, but Jonah flees, but the Lord pursues. But Jonah wants away from the presence of God, but God's presence doesn't ever leave him. See the contrast in the text? Jonah is on the run, running from God. God is moving toward Jonah. Repetition found in the word, but the contrast is found in their actions. Lots and lots of tension around that dynamic between Jonah and God throughout the whole book. Okay, here's another contrast. Jonah and the men on the ship. Now the men, they're doing everything in their power to survive the storm. They're calling out on their gods. They're throwing stuff off the ship. Where's Jonah? Jonah's downstairs catching a nap. Jonah does nothing. Jonah's down there. He's just entered the rim cycle. That's where Jonah is, okay? Now, look at verse six. I want you to see this. The captain goes down below, finds Jonah, wakes him up. How is it that you're asleep? Get up, call on your God. Incredible irony here. Why? Those are the exact same words that God uses with Jonah when he commissions him to go to Nineveh. Look at verse two. This is crazy. Arise, same word, get up, same word, and call out, go cry against Nineveh. Exact same imperative verbs. When the captain speaks, it's God's words that are ringing in Jonah's ears. And so this is what we have so far. The prophet of the one true God, he bolts, he runs, he gets on a ship headed across the Mediterranean Sea. God sends a storm his way, a storm that is so nuts, so crazy, a storm like these crusty old hardened seafarers have never seen, that they cry out to their gods. The captain of the ship goes down into the hull of the boat. He tells Jonah to get out, get up and cry out to his God, who of course is the only one who can save them and who of course is is the one that Jonah is currently running from. Talk about trying to get someone's attention. I think God's done it here. But we could also say it this way. Let me say it another way. Jonah is sent by God to save godless men in Nineveh who want nothing to do with him, right? Everybody good there? Jonah is currently on a boat stuck on a ship with godless men who are begging him to cry out to his God to save them. You getting this? Credible, rich irony. This is awesome. Who's cheering for the bad guys? Who's in it? Yeah, here we are. Okay, here's what our observations show us. All these observations, repeated words, contrasted actions, they help us to understand what the text means. Observation leads to interpretation and application. Okay, And here, when we distill it all down, this text, it says something about us, something about God, and something about Jonah. Okay, Here's what it says about us. Anytime we sin, which we all do, we endanger others. Our sin endangers others. 
my sin, the consequences of my sin. It doesn't just affect me, it impacts the people around me. My choices put others at risk. My disobedience leaves awake. What's interesting about this scene is the juxtaposition. Jonah is supposed to be delivering Nineveh when in fact he is actually endangering someone else. The consequences of his disobedience follow him. His sin endangers the men on the boat. They're caught in the same storm that was sent for Jonah. So no matter how hard Jonah tries to hide in the hull of the ship, no matter how much denial he must be in as he sleeps it away, no matter how invisible Jonah tries to become when he's on the deck of the ship and they're rolling the dice to see who's responsible for this storm, he cannot stop his sin from bleeding over into the lives of the others. His sin oozes out and affects everyone on the boat. Hear me on this. To one degree or another, this is always true. It's always true. It doesn't matter how careful you are, how private you are, how hard you work to try to protect the ones you love, your sin endangers those around you. Now, it might not always be life and death situation like it is here. It might be more subtle than that. It it might cause someone else to sin. It might cause someone else, their heart to be hardened before God. It might harm a friendship. It might break a trust. It might cause great pain. The point is, the consequences of sin cannot be contained. I've been doing some reading on this nuclear reactor in Japan that was devastated by the earthquake and tsunami In March of 2011, maybe some of you have kept up with this story as well. The bottom line is this. They can't contain the radioactivity. They can't. They can't stop the contaminated water from the reactor from flowing into the groundwater and affecting everything around it. It's affected the crops. It's certainly affected the people in the region. Experts are concerned about its impact on the Pacific Ocean. Now the government's gotten involved. The government hopes they found a solution. They're, they're planning to build a $31 billion ice wall around the reactor, put pipes deep into the ground, fill them with water, freeze it, hope that the ground freezes around it so that the contaminated water cannot continue to seep out into the groundwater. Some believe that it's seeping out by more than 300 tons per day since March of 2011. Why are they so concerned about it? Because radioactivity affects everything that it touches. Our sin is not dissimilar. Our sin is radioactive, so to speak. Romans 5 verse 12, Paul says this. He says, through one man, sin entered the whole the whole world, every man, every woman affected by Adam's sin. In fact, the Bible says that because of Adam's sin, we sin. 
And just like with Adam, our sin oozes, it seeps, it affects the lives of those around us. It cannot be contained. So this sin says something very important about us, doesn't it? Something very important about our sin. And it says something important about God as well. Something important about the character of God. Question, what does God do when Jonah runs? He pursues him. Jonah's a disobedient prophet of God. What does God do? He chases him down with what? With a storm. And see, God, who has dominion, power, and authority over all things created, he uses that power and authority to send a storm, to hurl a storm in the path of Jonah's boat. Why? Because nothing can stop the relentless pursuit of a loving God. That's why. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the relentless pursuit of a loving God. No act of disobedience, no self-centeredness, no hard-heartedness, absolutely nothing. Yes, this storm is a consequence of Jonah's disobedience. It is. Yes, this storm represents God's discipline in Jonah's life. It does. But it is also one of the clearest pictures that we have in all of scripture of God's compassion. You see, this great storm is a measure of God's great mercy in Jonah's life. If it were justice alone, in other words, if it were justice without compassion, I believe that the Lord would have allowed Jonah to continue to run. He would have allowed him to spend his life separated and isolated from God. That's what Jonah deserved. That would have been fine. That would have been fair. That's consistent with a just God. But God is more than just. He's also compassionate. He pursues. He chases. He is relentless. Often, maybe more often than we'd like to realize, not always, but often, the storms in our lives are expressions of God's severe mercy, his constant pursuit, and his relentless love. You see, we get to the storm and we tend to get bogged down with the storm itself, whatever it is. We get bogged down right there and it's like, I do. Why this storm? When is this storm going to be over? And when we get bogged down right there, we can miss the sovereign hand of God in our lives. We can miss what he wants to show us. can miss what he wants to teach us. We can miss him. The sailors in this scene, they, they cast lots to see who's responsible for the storm. It's no accident that the dice come up. Jonah, of course. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast in the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. God's sovereign over this too. And when the dice turn up Jonah, he's forced to answer their questions. He's forced to admit who he's running from and why. Jonah, through no doing of his own, is exposed. Now, we don't like to be exposed. We don't. We don't like to be found out. But here's what I'm suggesting. 
I'm suggesting that that is a measure of God's mercy as well. God doesn't expose Jonah to ridicule him, to humiliate him, to shame him. No, God exposes Jonah's sin to save him, to save him from himself, to save him from a life isolated from God. This God we serve is an incredible God. He is. Even in our disobedience, even in our sin, he pursues us. He chases us down. Now that's not license to sin more so that God would pursue us more. No, that's the hope that when we do, we would be found out. That our sin would be exposed and that we would find God's healing mercy right in the middle of it. So we see something important about us, something important about God, and we see something here. This text says something about Jonah as well. Look at the phrase in verse 6, middle of the verse. Captain of the ship, he wakes Jonah up. He tells Jonah to get up, call on his God. And then he said this, here's the phrase. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us. This is a very significant comment. I don't know that the captain knew how significant it was when he said it, but God did. And I believe this, I believe that when Jonah heard it, Jonah knew how significant it was as well. This is the first hint in the story as to why Jonah is running. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us implied. Jonah, we are clear that you're not concerned about us, but maybe your God will be. First hint as to why Jonah is running. That question is fully answered in the first two verses of chapter four. So flip over to chapter four just for a minute. We're actually going to pick it up at the end of chapter three in verse 10. Now at this point, just for context, Jonah has gone to Nineveh. He's cried out against the Ninevites. God is going to judge you in 40 days. And this is what happens. And it points to why Jonah is running. Look at verse 10, chapter three. When God saw their deeds, that is the deeds of the Ninevites, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Verse 1 chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than my life. Jonah has a major problem. It's a theological problem. Jonah doesn't like it that the undeserving are offered grace. He doesn't like it that the wicked, evil Assyrians up here in Nineveh, he doesn't like it that they don't get what they deserve. He believes that God's grace has gone too far. God's grace makes him angry. Did you hear that? It's God's grace that makes Jonah angry. 
that idea has been messing with me all week. It's going to mess with us throughout the whole course of the book. And so when we come back to chapter 1, to this scene in Act 1, because we know what is true, because Jonah knows what is true about the character of God, that he is all those things, gracious and compassionate and abounding in loving kindness and slow to anger, that he knows that's true about God. And because he is aware of the possibility that the Ninevites might repent and return to God, and because he doesn't like that idea, because he can't stand that idea, he runs. Maybe if I run, the Ninevites will get what they deserve. Maybe if I run, God won't be gracious to them. Now, the problem with Jonah's problem, if I can say it this way, is that he forgets that God has been gracious to him. He forgets that God has dealt with him in just the same way. He is just as undeserving. He needs the grace. He is so unwilling to offer someone else. Jonah is a walking contradiction. Which is why this passage is so comical in that Jonah runs from God because he doesn't want to preach to the pagans. And now he's stuck on a ship where he is doing precisely that, right? Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Jonah is forced to answer who he is. Said to them, I am a Hebrew. Then he's forced to answer who his God is. And I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Yes, my God is responsible for this storm. And even though his witness is passive and weak, he is forced to watch a group of pagans experience God's grace. So here's the whole scene in a nutshell. You ready? Jonah doesn't care about the Ninevites. But God does. Jonah doesn't care about the men on the boat, but God does. And even though Jonah is a prophet of God who doesn't care about the things that God cares about, guess what? God cares about Jonah too. He pursues him. He chases him. He offers his mercy and his grace to him over and over throughout the rest of the book. This is not a fish story. This is the story of God's compassionate heart for people, for heathens, for pagans, even for disobedient Christians. And Jonah's going to learn about God's compassionate heart firsthand. And so are we. So what? This morning, we're going to spend some time in the Lord's Supper together. We're going to partake in that to. Gather. And so I want to invite the ushers to come down and begin passing the elements for the Lord's Supper. And I want to invite any of you who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, even if you're not a member of this church, you're welcome to participate in this ordinance with us. And as the ushers pass the elements, this is what I would like for you to consider for a few moments privately before the Lord. Okay, Here's what I would like for you to think about just for a few moments. 
there was someone else in the Bible who was asleep in the bottom of a boat during a great storm. Do you remember this? Mark chapter 4 gives us the account. Here's what Mark says. It was on the boat. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern. He was in the hold of the ship, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Sound familiar? Those words are almost exact. Why? Because everything in Jonah points to Jesus. That's why. Everything in Jonah points the way to the Messiah. We have a sin problem. Our sin endangers others. There was one who was sent to remedy sin. There was one who was sent to offer us forgiveness for our sin. That forgiveness ends the threat of our sin. We are prone to run. We are, we're prone to run. God is prone to pursue us. How does he pursue us once and for all? How does he pursue us ultimately? Through his son, Jesus. That's how. He sends his only son. He sends his son to die for us. That's his ultimate loving pursuit. We sang about it. Jonah has a theological problem, major one. His theological problem is this. Somebody has got to pay the price for sin. Somebody's got to do it. God has a theological answer. There is one who does, and he does it for all. For the Ninevites, for for the men on the boat, for Jonah, and for you and me. In the Hebrew, Jonah and Jesus come from the same root name. Jonah, Joshua, Jesus. All means the same thing. The Lord, our God, saves. He saves. The end of this account in Mark chapter 4 reads this way. And Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died and the sea became perfectly calm. Would you take just a minute, these moments, and reflect on your sin? Reflect on God's constant pursuit of you through his son and reflect on the son's sacrifice on your behalf. We'll take the elements together in just a moment.
the bread, it's the body of Christ broken for us. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And the cup is symbolic of his blood, spilled out, poured out for us. Take and drink in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that our sin would haunt us in such a way that it would send us running to you. And that when we find you there, we would experience your tender mercy, your relentless love, the sacrifice of your son that was made on our behalf, that we would find restored relationship with you. What a picture. Thanks for Jonah who points the way that we might take a moment at the end of a service and worship Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. As you stand, I'm going to send you out with this. If over the course of the scene, you found yourself rooting for the bad guys, I want you to know you're in good company. It seems the Lord of the universe was rooting for them and for Jonah and for you and me as well. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.